Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's episode 146, 9th of May, 2018. Did I get that right, Scott? Episode one hundred good. You just looked at me strange. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Scott, clearly, Scott, the Velvet Glove is, is alive and well. G'day. How is everyone? We're all good. And the 12th man is back yet again. Hi, guys. How are you? <laughs> it's just the three of us. It uh, is. This time, yeah. yep, no special guests. No. So um, let's open it up. The budget. Um, ScoMo, he's, he's, he's put forward his budget. You were a ScoMo fan, you know, I was years ago. I was never a fan, well, but, but I did say that I thought he could be a leader. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he can be now. Mm. Um, not because of last night's budget or anything like that. I think the it was a classic pre-election Liberal Party budget where you throw out income tax cuts to try and buy votes. That's what it's come down to. Mm. It's a pre-election budget and, you know, there's not much more to say about it other than that. Uh, The disappointing things that were in there, um, well, you have to look far for them, but um, I've still got to go through this CPA stuff that was emailed to me today about winners and losers and all that sort of thing. But... um, the Climate Council sent me an email this afternoon saying that all the money had been stripped out for climate change. Um, really? Yeah. Now, I don't recall anything being said like that in the in the budget speech and whatnot, but it's probably all buried in the budget papers saying that, oh, there was one part where ScoMo did say that uh, he was not going to be subsidising anything anymore, that he was putting it into subsidies for energy production. So that was probably where they were talking about. Um, 12th man, any thoughts? <laughs> the fact that he didn't mention it is hardly surprising, is mm. it? No. Um, it, yeah. you, you, what you've got on there is what the government does is they always just put out, they have a speech with outlining all the good stuff. Yeah. The half, well, the, the horrible measures are buried in the budget papers. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was talking to Scott about this on the way over and... Um, we, we agreed that it, it, was, it was unfortunate that the government couldn't find a few pennies for those people on Newstart, those people who, you know, struggle to get by. Uh-huh. Um, and, and we sort of agreed, didn't we, Scott, that it's a small price to pay for any uh, affluent country like Australia... Uh, even if there are a few people who brought the system um, or a few people who are not particularly interested in working. I mean, a rich society can afford to carry a few freeloaders and it's a small price to pay just to provide a bit of dignity and a bit of, um, you know, reasonable living for those people who, for whatever reason, are out of work, can't find work, and they need to survive. They need to live just like everybody. And um, they're you know. bludgers, according to this mob. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what. Well, according I mean, they, to that they, mob, you still uh, hear that uh, soundbite from former treasurer Hockey when he said, "We are a nation of lifters, not leaners." Mm. And that is what they are harking back to. But that's yeah. code, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So it's, that's yeah. code for you know us people who are well off. We work hard and we deserve it. Mm. And those who are less well-off don't deserve it because they're freeloaders. Because mm. they clearly didn't work hard. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just not like that. I, mm. Do you know, many years ago, I was, I was working as a, an agricultural labourer in North Queensland. And the quite affluent farmer I was working for, um, his wife, who was a bit of a, a dimwit, I have to say. But anyway, <laughs> pleasant enough dimwit. She used to bring us morning tea out in the field, you know, we'd start, we'd start working at dawn, <laughs> literally at dawn. What were you picking or what were you doing? We, we were picking tobacco, actually. Oh, and it, yeah, okay. You know, mid-morning, the, the farmer's wife would um, bring us all morning tea and we'd sit down beside the tobacco in the, in the field and, and have a pleasant little morning tea and we'd chit-chat about this and that. And I clearly remember this woman one morning... I don't know how we got onto the subject of relative wealth and poverty. And she said, oh, all those 
you know, India's a, a country of poor people and the reason they're so poor is they, they, they won't get off their asses and get a job. <laughs> you know, and even at that young, tender young age, uh, without the benefit of a university education, I sat there and thought, no, 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 that is not the reason they are poor, you know. Mm. But some people have that attitude, don't they? Well, the entire coalition government does. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all about cutting tax and cutting and cutting and, and then just doling out a few choice bits for infrastructure or for, yeah. um, you know, interest groups that they're wanting to look after. I mean, to me, it was once again the baby boomers screwing over the younger generation. Absolutely. Like was, yeah. the money and concessions, mm. are, you'll be able to earn more and keep your pension mm-hmm. and there's going to be more in aged care. And there's a couple of other things there that, that were all tilted towards the goddamn baby boomers. Yeah, absolutely. Who still keep all, all of them fantastic superannuation mm-hmm. benefits that they've been entitled to and nothing done to reduce the cost of housing. So it was all for old people, nothing for young people mm. in that budget. And look, you know, I, you can throw rocks at me if you like for saying this, but I honestly think that uh, the family home should go into the assets test mm. for the pension because it's absolutely ridiculous that you've got, you know, you know, obviously a current affair, as soon as you do this, would find the little old lady who lived in Vaucluse ever since the war and, yeah. and she's a pensioner. And, but, you know, the home she lived in in Vaucluse probably cost £2,000 at the time when she bought it. It's now a million bucks. Mm. I don't believe she should get the pension if she's sitting on a million-dollar asset. Mm. And I think that we've got to break the nexus between the family home being something beautiful and sacrosanct that you can't touch. Mm. You know, they're into the weird. Yeah, look, I think, I, right. I, think, I think there should be a threshold on that. I think there should be a, an allowance because I can well, what you tell do, you, you... What you do is you, 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 put it into the, you, put it into the, you put it into the assets test mm. and you increase the asset mm. that you're allowed to hold. Yes, mm. But what it, does is, what it does do is say if you live in Vaucluse, you can't get the pension. I don't have a problem with that. Anyway, <laughs> here's a couple. I, I, of... I, don't, I don't know if I completely agree with that, but um, I mean, I grew up in a in a working class area of Sydney, and do you know my? I know for a fact my parents' home literally cost two thousand pounds mm. in the nineteen fifties, and it's now worth. You know, just a block of land would be worth half a million. Absolutely, and that, that's a, But see, that would be that would be part of the whole calculation. Where you'd yeah. say that you will increase the asset test by seven hundred thousand yeah. dollars, which means if your home is worth seven hundred thousand dollars or under, you've got no problem. You can still catch the. You can still get the pension. Yes. If it's yeah. above that, then you start losing your pension because yeah. your assets so, are in excess of that amount of money. The example of Vaucluse is probably a little bit um, unfortunate, or a little bit exaggerated. Yeah, because it probably is. Yeah. Even in oh, even in the nineteen fifties, a house in Vaucluse would have cost a lot more than two thousand well, pounds. It would, but, but yeah. not that uncommon for people to have basically an extremely um, valuable home that they're living in, and then qualify for the pension because mm. they have no other assets. Yes. Exactly. And, uh, but in reality, they're actually quite wealthy if you take into account that asset. So mm. why but treat that asset any differently to the same person who had a, owned shares but was renting a place? Mm. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't make Just to play sense. devil's advocate a mm. bit, what if there was a person who, you know, they, they talk about the fact that um, firemen and nurses can't afford to live, in, you know, in the inner city areas of the big cities anymore because rents and house, house prices are too high. So, they, they, you know, a lot of people are commuting long distances to work mm. who work in essential services, for example, because they can't afford to literally to live in, this, in the areas where they might need to work. What if, what if it was a genuine case of a person who had bought property in a, an area... Sorry, that's my phone. Right. Who bought property in an area where, you know, property prices had skyrocketed, 
but they were still living a fairly modest lifestyle. You know what I mean? And why should they be compelled to change their the location of their home just because that asset asset but, had appreciated? But they're not compelled to. But they are in a position where but they're you, seeking a privilege because they're saying. But you would deny the, them a pension. You know, no, it might no, be somebody no, with no job no, skills who no. just happened to have have lived for many years and then retired onto the pension in a house. You know, it might not be a particularly flash house, but just because of escalating property prices, and 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 they want to live out their days in that in that property. I think that's fair enough to leave them there. But, 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 but you would deny them the pension. Because what they're saying yeah, is, yeah. I am so poor, I need the help of society to um, get by, is what they're saying. Please pay me this pension because I can't afford to put food on the table and pay my bills. Well, if they've paid their taxes all their working life and mm-hmm. they're entitled to the pension, well, I would leave them there. Yeah, but then the same person who has paid their taxes all their life but has a modest house but with investments in shares and what other, other things paid even more tax in their life perhaps is then told, well, actually, it's just a different category of assets so you're not going to get the pension. So, you know, you put the two people side by side and you say, well, that's really unfair. And, and, you know, the pension is not an entitlement as of right that everybody must get. It's supposed to be a safety net for people who otherwise are going to be out on the street. But would you say to that old codger, you know, sorry, mate. You're going to have to sell your house and move out to the outer suburbs no, if you well, want to get the pension. Well, well, there are things like reverse mortgages. So that's where you can go to a bank and say, uh, I've got this million-dollar home and I'm 65. I'm not going to, you know, live... Well, maybe I am going to live much longer. Mm. Anyway, but you can draw down on the value of your um, home against a mortgage, so a reverse mortgage yeah. is possible. Yeah. So, would that be unfair to say to somebody, "Well, that's what you'll need to do"? Yeah, I don't know. But um, you know, a million dollar home is a pretty common thing in you know, as I said, in the working class area of Sydney where I grew up, which is not anywhere near the the CBD. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's why you'd have to that's why you'd have to be very careful about how you you do that. You'd have to say to people living in Sydney, or that's something like that. Maybe maybe you're going to have to give them a a higher asset a asset test or something like that as in Sydney and Melbourne as opposed to Brisbane or Adelaide. Mm. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's one of those things. It's it's going to be. It's something that we should have this conversation now and we yeah. should sort it out and then by the time yeah. we all retire... <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, there's a whole bunch of laws and regulations that clearly advantage the baby boomers and this budget just accentuates all of that and they're, they're screwing over the young people. They're just saying, make them pay for all the university fees and... and uh, a whole bunch of other things are just really difficult on young people. That is the thing that I find really frustrating about the youth is that they are not as angry as they should be. That's a, wake up. They really should be extremely pissed off because yes. they are being rogered yep. very badly yep. and it's going to people who are older than us. I mean, mm. none of us are young, mm. but it is going mm. to people older than us mm. And we are going to get screwed too because we're going to get told once we hit retirement age we can't afford a pension. Mm. You know, you better hope your super's okay. Mm. <laughs> and that's what's going to happen to us. Mm. But it's the benefits already flowing to that generation. It's really, it's really wrong that yeah. the government is doing that. And ironically, the young people who are angry are angry about the wrong things. Absolutely you know, they are. They're yeah. angry about... You know, the slightest suggestion of bigotry from somebody, unintended or otherwise, but they're not angry about the unequal economic uh, situation. Yeah, yeah. Yasmin Abdul Majid was, was, you know, railing about all sorts of topics, but never about, about, about how that. tough it is for the working class um, young person. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Okay, a couple of uh, religious tidbits in the budget. Uh, this, I just found this one through Catholic News. Oh, yeah, the bloody so, National School Chaplaincy Program uh, has been extended and made permanent. Oh. Yeah, so that's true. So, um, 
that so, annoyed the shit out of yeah. me. We, we called for people to sign the petition. Yes. Do you remember? And do you remember mm-hmm. I said, if you don't sign the petition, then just stop listening. Yes. I've, and got, did they stop? Well, I've got, I've got a message, <laughs> I've got a voicemail message from a listener. So uh, just, uh, I'll just turn this up a little bit. You can listen to this one. All right. I signed the petition. Can I listen again, guys? Please. You <laughs> can, can indeed, hey listener. Thanks for doing that. It didn't help. Well, it, it wasn't successful, but you've 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 done your bit. So yes, continue listening. Well, I've got a text message from my brother in China saying, "Can you send me the link, please? I'll sign it too." So, oh, all right, anyway. very good. Okay. So yes, there's that. School chaplaincy uh, is embedded for another four years at least we've already spent nearly a billion dollars on it so more to come um how about this one employers who hire a migrant worker under a temporary skills visa are normally forced to pay a levy into the apprenticeship fund but 2008 budget papers reveal religious groups will be exempted many churches hire foreign ministers foreign ministers as in ministers of the cloth, Mm. often from strongly religious Latin American countries or Asian nations like the Philippines and South Korea. The scheme would have forced churches to pay up to $8,000 per year for a temporary worker or $5,500 for a permanent visa holder. But the government will exempt religious organisations from paying the Skilling Australia's fund levy when they nominate a foreign skilled worker for a temporary skills shortage. Blah, blah, blah. So there we go. On what grounds? Because Scanlay likes religions. He's religious. He's a hill... He's he's a hillsong type. He's a hillsong devotee, and Mm, he's just part of the, you know, religious... So if they import these people to do the most useless job on earth, then they are exempted from paying anything into... What should, you know, into a fund that will cultivate useful skills. Correct. And that other people and businesses are subject to. So there we go. Another special exemption for uh, religious groups. Take that, Mr Ruddock. Mm. And, you know, minor tinkering with the tax rates, trying to flatten it out. Essentially, uh, what we're going to be left with is a system where only 6% of taxpayers pay the top rate mm-hmm. not many so there's that bit um all right in other religious news moving away from the budget uh we've previously mentioned about hard right religious groups taking over the liberal party and they are active in western australia and they've been active in victoria and Uh, There's a character down in Victoria who's been uh, really busy in signing up religious groups because this is the thing. You can go to a church, get in with a church group or a minister and and say, look, we want you to join the Liberal Party and this branch and, you know, we promote conservative values and they can deliver, you know, 100 people to a meeting. Mm -hmm. It's bloody hard to get 100 people to go to any meeting in Australia. So they can can deliver numbers. Can you imagine trying to get 100 atheists to a political meeting? Impossible. Uh, Impossible. So anyway... That's why the really nasty stuff's coming out of Victoria. Yeah, so there's some... It's really awful. Mm. So, and one of the characters... So there's a guy called Bastian, Marcus... Bastian, B-A-S-T-I-A-A-N, who's been very active in in signing up religious groups, and he's worked heavily in getting the Mormons in. So at a recent, oh, some sort of conference where they were electing senior people to positions in the Victorian Liberal Party, this, thing, this, this Mormon character was promoted to a position. He's a doctor, and he's a senior Mormon, and... Now, he's a doctor of infectious diseases. He's formally involved with Family First Party. And let me just see. Yeah, he studied HIV. And, yeah, he's some sort of infectious disease doctor. And he said, basically, that he blames ungodly love for HIV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is code for homosexual love. Yes. Yes, exactly. 
I, a quote from this guy. His name is Dr. Stratov. Sounds like it's not that far off Dr. Strangelove. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the quote from him is, I studied a disease called HIV. 35 million people have died from that disease because they all decided they were going to make man's love, not God's love. Dr. Stratov reportedly told his audience. This is the calibre of people reaching positions of power in the Victorian Liberal Party. It's, it's, it's a Tea Party takeover happening. Yeah. It is, and it's, um, it really is quite distressing that it's happening on that sort of scale because mm. we've been getting more and more nonsensical stuff coming out of the Victorian branch. Um, I believe they have... Again, they're fixated on gays. Um, yep. Gay conversion therapy is something that they're banging the drums about. Yep. You know, it's really ridiculous that that's so, all they're safe, fixated on. Safe schools program. Exactly. Converting yeah. young children to the gay lifestyle. Yeah. 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 Okay. In America, Pew Research had, did some studies of Americans and their belief. And they asked them the question... Do you believe in God or not? And on that straight question, 80% said yes and 19% said no. So a very uh, strong religious belief. But then when they said to the ones who had said yes, they said, do you believe in a God as described in the Bible or do you believe in some sort of power or spiritual force? And of those, about, uh, about one-third... Well, actually, when they said they believed in God, it was some sort of higher power spiritual force. Then on the other side of the equation, the ones that they said, uh, do you believe in God or not, where there was 19% said no, they also asked them, but do you believe in some sort of higher power or spiritual force? And half of them did. Mm. So from those two camps, you end up with, uh, of the population, about 33% who believe in God in some sort of spiritual higher power sense. It's the hippies' God, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's good to know that they don't believe in the biblical God. Yeah. You know, that is something that we can work with. <laughs> yep, that is. Yeah. From there, anything's possible. Exactly. Yeah. I think we're going to have to work a little bit harder on them, though. Yeah. Well, I, we we haven't know. captured that part of the uh, American population with the podcast as yet. No, no we haven't. But... It's one of those things that I think, for me, that's, those numbers there are a cause for joy. Yeah. 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 It's a complicated question when people say, do you believe in God? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Because let's face it, all of us have got, most of us have got the image of God that was drummed into us as kids and that mm. sort of stuff from the Bible, yep. you know, which... Yeah, you've got to get your definitions right when exactly. you talk about that sort of stuff. Mm. Still with that same Pew Research poll, about half of US adults believe God determines what happens to them most or all of the time. And nearly 8 in 10 US adults think God or a higher power has protected them. And two-thirds of Americans say they've been rewarded by the Almighty. There we go. They really think that he's got a pretty constant presence in their life and is looking at them directly. And can I mention that I recently, um, I occasionally flick channels and if I come across a rugby league match, you know, um, being (laughs) played, I, you know, I I occasionally stop and watch it for a little while. And have you noticed at the end of rugby league matches these days or when when a player scores some points, there's a, a, a growing presence of this, you know, phenomenon that's been present in America for so long that after scoring points, you know, they point to the sky or they, they cross engage themselves. in some cross yes. themselves or they, yep. you know, kiss and point to the sky. Or yep. it's be- We're starting to see it in Australia now. And I saw uh, mm. in the last oh, week to ten days, at the end of a match, I saw about five or six... Um, first grade rugby league players in a little huddle this was post match mm. praying yeah. they were they were on their knees praying together in a little huddle together on the field very publicly you know it was a obvious public display of superstition i've got a theory here 12 men what's your theory 
There's, there's a lot of Polynesians playing rugby league these yes. days compared to and, 15, And you know how, how deep yep. uh, Christian missionaries penetrated the, the South Pacific. Indeed. And, very, they, very and deep. they like to wear their Christianity on their sleeve or their, or their Mormonism, which is still Christianity, apparently. Tonga, yeah. apparently, is, yeah. is quite heavily um, yeah. influenced. So I'm Mormons. putting it down to next time you see that 12th man, have a look and see how many are, seem to be of Polynesian Oh, I know a lot are. Yeah. Yes, I'm aware of that. Yeah. yeah. So mm. there's my theory. And I see our friend Israel Falau today doubled down on his comments again. So <laughs> You did. Yeah. So another one. I didn't hear that. What's he do? Uh, I can't remember exactly what he's done, but he's, he's, he's tweeted something and referred to some sort of anti-gay sort of sentiment in some yeah. website or something like that. So, yeah. Look, I came across by chance uh, several, uh, a little while back a... Um, one of a, a Polynesian of some sort. They were, they were clearly Polynesian when you looked at the photos. It was a Facebook page of a church in Brisbane, and it mm. was a you know predominantly Polynesian uh, peopled church. Mm-hmm. And the, the the pastor of the church, the main religious leader of the church, uh, presented himself as a warrior for God. You know right, he, he, this yeah. sort of. You know, which is which is a strong theme in Polynesian culture, isn't it? Mm. After all, we you know we're used to seeing New Zealand footballers uh, engaging in a war dance, you know, prior to their their matches. Now, this guy was presenting himself as a warrior for God and encouraging all the followers in the church to become warriors for God. It's this, you know, it, I suppose it really uh, resonates it's... with people in that sort of culture. You know, I, I actually. T- sort of, you know, foolishly thought I'd make some snide comments on the Facebook page. And, and a few of them yep. sort of, in, you know, half seriously engaged me. In, in fact, I'll, I'll give them credit. Two or three of them did quite, quite in a civil manner, quite engage me in a conversation for a little while until I just gave up because it's, it's a bit like beating your head against a brick wall after a while. Right. Because you know you're not really going to break through no matter how rational and reasonable your argument mm. is. But um, anyway, it, they're out there. There are quite a lot of them and Christianity is very, very strong in those communities. Mm. There you go. The other news that came out during the week was Gonski came out again, and this time with recommendations about reforming education in Australia. And he's half a chance of getting these up because Gonski and Turnbull are very good friends, Mm. apparently. Mm. And what he's advocating is a shift away from year-based curriculum to a curriculum expressed as learning progressions independent of year or age. So basically every kid is assessed and just sort of marked in a position and the goal is to get that kid uh, by the end of the year to have a year's worth of learning transferred into him or her at the end and, and really improve that child's position by a year and not so much looking at a class and and moving a class as a whole. And one of the sort of elements of this is that teachers are supposed to provide customised classes and learnings and programs for each child. And what they said was, oh, look, what we'll do uh, is, you know, one of the things we can do to help them, you know, find time for that is, you know, we'll... Uh, get volunteers to come into the school to do playground duty. So parents, so, so teachers won't have to do playground duty. Right but, idea. But you know, so I, you know, having strangers in uh, volunteers in a school. I mean, who are they going to be? Who? What group is likely to volunteer <laughs> to do playground <laughs> duty in schools? Particularly the church the types, yeah. challenging <laughs> schools. And I can tell you from experience, even even full time teachers can have a hard time managing. <laughs> Kids on playground duty. Exactly. There are some schools where nobody's going to be, you know. And if you're new in the place, if yeah. you're a new teacher, yep. full time, yep. with full authority to act as a teacher, I can tell you, if if the teacher doesn't know the names of those naughty students, they will run rings around that person. Yeah. They will absolutely 
exploit the situation to the hilt. It just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't me. make sense the, the, at all. A teacher, like it would be hard enough to be a teacher and to work out programs for your class as a whole, yeah. let alone do that 25 times if you had and customise it for each Ten child. students, maybe, maximum. Yep. You could maybe do it, but yep. not 30, 40, however many students the yep. average teacher yep. has custody. I mean, in, in primary school, I don't know what the class size is now. What is it, about 30? Oh, I think about 25, maybe. 25. Yeah, my but high school teachers uh, will teach probably five or six separate classes, you know what I mean, in, mm. in, in their subject areas. Yep. So that adds up to about how many? 150 kids or something? It's a lot of work. And it's just it's ludicrous to expect teachers impossible. to do personalised programs for every child. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and look, the idea of um, having kids pr- uh, progress at their own speed, it's a fine idea. And it could work for a small number of students mm. in, a, in a really amazing, well-resourced school. Yep. But for that to work in public education, you know, like mass education, particularly in a country, you know, with a large population and, you know, literally millions of kids, mm. uh, it's, it's problematic, I have to say. Mm. I heard um, some... One expert was harking back to Finland. Is that the way Finland sets up their education oh, system? Is I, that? I don't... Not that I've read. I, no. I doubt it. And it seems from my what I've read, so I've got in my hand uh, Free Schools by David Gillespie, and in it he puts forward the argument that the better performing countries have larger class sizes, um, but the teachers have less contact time. So a teacher might be standing in front of 50 or 60 kids and delivering the content, um, and doing it once, but doing it really well, instead of doing that same thing, repeating it to two different smaller groups. And what will also happen is, um, because they're doing it that way, they've got less contact time, they actually sit in on other teachers' lessons and review and and pass on tips and and information. So rather than teachers being quite sort of solitary in their classroom, running their own rock show, they have bigger classes, less contact time, and teachers sort of popping in and out of each other's classrooms, helping out and working together. That, to me, seems like it makes sense. But customised programs for every child? I'm no education expert, obviously, but it just seems counterintuitive. And nobody in what I've read has said, oh, that's what they do in Finland and that's what they do in Shanghai and that's what they do in these other countries where... The kids are two and a half years ahead of our kids. Mm. The other thing about it, obviously, the other interesting part is, you know, they talk about Shanghai and these other places where kids, you know, with their English and their maths are two years ahead of ours. I just wonder about their creativity. You know, their ability to be creative, design things. I just wonder if they're quite robotic in their thinking. I think there's still high levels of rote learning. Yeah, in, uh, East Asian countries is yeah. what I've heard. And as a skill, sure, it, we'll need people with good math skills and things, but we need people who can communicate. And think. And think. Independently. And, yeah. So it'd be interesting to find some sort of assessment of how well, say, Shanghai does, students do in those sort of soft skills that people need in jobs. Not China so is a really interesting a very case. Isn't interesting it? question. Because the Chinese economy is, you know, has been for years going gangbusters, mm. and uh, it's 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 often said that in you know developed Western democracies like ours, people are becoming cynical about our democratic political systems, and some people are suggesting that some people might be persuaded that democracy is not serving their best interests after all because governments tend to, like we've just seen, try to do what they need to do to get re-elected rather than do what needs what is in the best interests of the whole country in the long term. Whereas in China, because they don't have elections, mm. 
they just do what they think needs to be done. And it's, it, I mean, it's a bureaucracy, but they, you know, and there's a lot of corruption, as we know. But they, you know, they've built a high-speed rail. They've built in, incredible infrastructure all over China, at least in the, in, in the major centres. Mm. And some people are suggesting that we, we just might, you know, lose the competition to people who think, well, democracy is not such a wonderful thing. Maybe we just need a an authoritarian government that gets things done. And, and there's a real danger in that, I think. There's a hell of a danger in that. Well, yeah. there's, there's some real dangers in our democracy. You know, we're, it's, it's not working. Our democracy is not working. It's been yeah, hijacked. I agree. It's been hijacked. It's been hijacked, it's been hijacked, hijacked by hijacked powerful on both interests. Sides. Yeah. It's been yeah. hijacked by powerful interests. So our oh, democracy and, is not working. And I you mean, only have to look at the United States to see how badly it, it, a democracy can be hijacked yeah. by business interests. Yep. Yeah. So it's, well, it's not just business interests in Australia. I think that the ACTU has far too much sway over the Labor Party too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are also business people that are into the Labor Party right up to their neck. So there's business people that, that look, the, the BCA obviously runs the Liberal Party and the ACTU runs the Labor Party, mm. you know. But union membership is at record low levels. Absolutely. Apparently. But they've still got the majority of the... Uh, um, representatives of the floor on the floor of the house have come from the unions. Mm. I, I guess what I was getting to was that story you told about that kid in a, in a class and the teacher kept asking him, what did he think about this? And what did he think about that? And at the end of the day, he threw up his hands and said, why don't you just tell me what I should be thinking? Of? Indeed, that was yeah. at university. And the student was yeah. a Jap- young yeah. Japanese man. Yeah. 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 That was interesting. Yeah. Funny, but kind of telling too. Yes. So, if you're out there, dear listener, and you know a little bit about that sort of topic and the calibre of student and their soft skills that are coming out of these places, keen to hear. Look, we talked about why aren't the young people in the streets demonstrating? And another thing that just seems to be slipping by is this plan. I'll read a bit from this article. Ministers are planning to make it easier for the government to spy on its own citizens, a leaked document has revealed. As it stands, the Australian Federal Police and Australian Security Intelligence Organisation need a warrant from the Attorney-General to access Australians', uh, Australians emails, bank records and text messages. But ministers are reportedly planning to amend the Act to allow Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton and Defence Minister Maris Payne to give the orders without the country's top lawyer knowing. So... That's it. Do we really want somebody no, like Peter Dutton? No, we don't. Being able to sign off on delving into people's personal affairs. Where is the uproar? In... Okay, I... I get it. Nobody's interested in submarines like yeah. we are, but nobody's interested in corporate tax cuts. Nobody's interested in Peter Dutton being able just to spy on you whenever he feels like it. Mm-hmm. What? Why, the streets should be full of people protesting these. These are serious things. Mm, you see, I even have a problem with a minister being able to sign off on a warrant. I would have thought that something like that should go before a judge. Yes, I agree. I would have thought a judge should be the one that signs off on warrants. Mm. Yeah, a, a senior judge of some sort yeah, I mean, should you see... Probably, you probably don't have to go as far as the High Court, but there are plenty of federal justices around that could sign off on warrants. Yep. Yeah, somebody and, who knows the law well, Yeah, and, because and, that's what it should be based on. And, sure. and you should have to prove some sort of reasonable suspicions as to... You need to demonstrate that you've got some evidence or some reason to believe that by delving into this private material, you'll come up with something, uh, you know, evidence of criminal activity or whatever. And you need to have a good reason, something for a judge to say, yep, that looks good enough to me. And, you know, whoever's the investigator needs to be able to put it down in writing. So later on, if it turns out it wasn't the case and it was all made up, well, they're in trouble. Mm, I agree. So... But see, this whole backroom thing between the Attorney-General and his top cops, I think that's mm, wrong. Yeah. I, you know, I, I realise I might have a law and order um, view of the law, but I really am surprised that a federal minister can sign off on warrants. Yeah. 
And people might say, oh, have you done nothing wrong? What have you got to worry about? But Yeah, but this, you know, these things... Um, History tells us that yeah. people often do have something to worry about even if they've done nothing wrong. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they could end up... Well, you know, Peter Dutton's probably the closest thing we've got to a neo-fascist in our, in our um, parliament. Right. But um, you don't a, look at me like that. That's a strong clunk, <laughs> a fascist. I mean, he is an ex-detective. Yeah, exactly. You don't put ex-detectives in charge no. of that sort of thing. No, you don't. And that's the thing. It's, um, you know, he could take exception to something the three of us say and they, next thing you know, all our bank records and everything are before, before them. That's right. You know, and that's really wrong. Whereas if he had to put it down on paper, put it in front of a judge, and the judge could take 10, 15 minutes to review it and he'd turn around and say, no, Take a hike. I'm not signing that. Yep. You know? Yep. So, so there you go. Young people out there, if you're looking for a movement, <laughs> there's plenty, there's no shortage of them, of things to protest. Do you guys catch Ubers? Well, I do. I've, I, I've never used it, the service. I, I haven't even downloaded the app, have you? Ah, I have. And when you downloaded the app, you would have been faced with uh, terms and conditions that yeah, you would exactly, have... exactly, which I would have signed away and that you would have, stuff. You would have said, I accept the terms and conditions. And right? what are the terms and conditions? Well, <laughs> you would have thought it's something simple like, you know, I agree to pay my bills mm. and, it, you know, stuff like that. But and you agree to supply a safe, reliable driver. Indeed, yes. So what they've found in the US, and I'm sure it would be the case here, is that um, it's a contract when you are agreeing uh, on that app to the terms and conditions. And contracts, commercial contracts, um, if there's a dispute, then normally you go to court. So if you want to sue somebody because of something that's happened in the contractual relationship, you end up in the standard court system. But it's possible to put into a commercial agreement that rather than the court system, you want to go through a private arbitration. So that way there's no official court records uh, public and you agree to abide by the decision of, of an arbitrator whose appointment is specified in the documents. So this is what happens in some commercial contracts. So... And is that arbitrator so, on the board of Uber? No, no uh, not necessarily. So remember when we talked about the investor-state dispute settlement mm-hmm. clauses in the TPP, mm. you know, when there was a dispute, it's going to go to an arbitrator mm. who was in some hotel room in Hong Kong and who knows what could happen. Mm-hmm. And, and you've got no right of uh, appeal. Yeah. So what's happening with Uber is these women have been raped by Uber drivers and they've wanted to sue Uber for not conducting proper practices in vetting their drivers. And Uber said, hold on a minute, you've agreed to an arbitration clause. So we, you, you can't go to this normal court. We're going to go to a private arbitration, uh, through an ar- a private arbitration process. But the law of the land would not excuse a private contract from being subject to the law of the land and to criminal prosecution. Well, this isn't for crime. This is for this is, this for, is for seeking money from Uber. Civil damages. Civil, yes. Yeah. So the guy the, the guys have been found guilty presumably already. I, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And so now the And they've ladies, got no money. Yeah. And so they're looking around for somebody with money. And so the ladies are going after Uber. To say, well, you didn't vet your drivers properly, therefore I'm going to sue you. Mm. So, uh, so there we go. So that's interesting that uh, that's in the terms and conditions of an Uber agreement. If you ever do log on and use the Uber service, 12th man, just be aware if you are raped that you could be heading for an arbitration process rather than court. System. That's assuming you yeah. decide to sue Uber for your rape. Yeah. Trying to frighten me. (laughs) (laughs) I need need a lift to the airport in a couple of weeks. Mm. I'm going to visit my sister. Mm. um, I'll give you a lift out to the airport. What day? Saturday morning. Yeah, that's fine. I'll give you a lift. You're good. Really? Oh, hang on a minute. No, I'm going to be in Malaysia. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He builds builds me up just to let me down. He does. (laughs) 
I'm I'm busy as well. I just can't, I can't remember what it was exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I might just have to get a, a normal taxi or the uh, the bus and the train goes out to the airport anyway. Mm. I enjoyed our conversation with Kevin Riley last week, and one thing I forgot to raise and we didn't have time was he's doing this documentary which is looking at historical Jesus and you know just sort of asking questions about about that and um, what he said he's going to do in order to generate publicity is he's going to he's going to um, draft up some template letters of complaint that he's going to distribute to his friends like you and me when the film is released that we can then send to religious groups to say I'm outraged I've just seen heard about this documentary and it's disgusting, and you know, so his his idea is for publicity will be to to actually draft letters of complaint for people to send to uh, religious groups. I think that would work actually because they'd be like a dog with a bone on that What's sort of stuff. What's the objective? Just to get publicity for it when it comes out, then because they will then um, get on the airwaves and make noise and say, "How could this you know documentary be allowed to exist?" And blah blah blah. Uh, it, it's a documentary that questions the historical yeah, existence elements. of Jesus. Yes, I believe so, or at least puts forward the uh, you know arguments from different sides okay. as to um, why you might want to question. And, and this subject mm. came up in Sam Harris's recent podcast. Yes, too. that was very good. It was an it was interesting Very good, one, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah I listened and to he, that this morning. What's mm. his name? Ehrman? Yeah. Ehrman? Something like that. The, the, he's a literally a biblical scholar, as you know, and yeah. he seems convinced that there was a person of some description, yes, he's, um, who you know, on, on on whom the the Jesus story was based. Yes, he of is. Of course, the details are a little bit hazy. Yeah, but ultimately, the you know the first gospel was written forty years after the death of Jesus, and a lot can happen in forty years. And mm. Paul mm. is often given the credit as being the true founder of the Christian Church, yes. um, and perhaps. You know, people have suggested he basically made it all up, or he was, or he was just a crazy person. You know, yeah. who who came up with a lot of um, ideas um, to create, you know, a, a hero figure to to be at the core of the religion. Mm. And maybe he just made the whole thing up. Anyway, that's what uh, Cam's going to do. Now, we of course spoke a bit about Islam with Cam, and a few other things have come up regarding. Muslims and Islam, and this article is titled Muslims Recoil at a French Proposal to Change the Quran. A manifesto published in the French daily Le Parisien on April 21st, signed by some 300 prominent intellectuals and politicians, including former President Nicolas Sarkozy and former Prime Minister Manuel Valls, made a shocking demand, arguing that the Quran incites violence. It insisted that verses of the Quran calling for murder and punishment of Jews, Christians and non-believers be struck to obsolescence by religious authorities so that no believer can refer to a sacred text to commit a crime. You're shaking your head, Dwarf Man. Well, it's a completely wasted exercise because it's, it's too late, you know. It's the, the book is already written. You can't unwrite it. And with the advent of electronic media, it's, it's so widely dispersed and copied so many millions of times, you simply cannot unwrite it. And people who reject the, the, the new version will just say, uh, I'm not going to read that new version. This is the original and the best. You know, I mean, they'll say this is the authentic Quran and this is the one I'm going to follow. Mm-hmm. So they're completely wasting their time. What they should be, what would be more constructive, constructive is to deconstruct all the stories in the Quran, deconstruct the myths, and and show people that most of them, more than likely, are in fact just myths. So a special exemption for religious groups is what you're saying. How's that? Well, we've often argued on this podcast that freedom of speech, you know, should be allowed to insult and offend other people. Yeah. But we drew a line 
at inciting, inciting violence. violence. We said that 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 at, inciting yeah. violence, as in, um, I I instruct all my listeners on this podcast to go out and 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 murder Kill the Jews, or whoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or you know, at Cronulla Beach, we're all going to get together and we're going to uh, bash any Lebanese yeah, yeah. that we're going to see down well, there. That is direct incitement to violence, yeah. but that's well uh, a separate issue to to a text that well, might be referred to, isn't well, it? Well, 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 no. But if I was to publish a letter saying that, or a poster that said, "Come on, everybody, let's go down and and." wreak havoc here. It's still a separate issue to trying to rewrite a historical text. So, okay, so the fact that it's written, though, still makes it an incitement to violence. Yes, but it's a historical document. You can't unwrite it. Yes, but you can publish it, uh, you know, fresh copies of it and sell fresh copies of it. So that's a, that's a modern-day act by republishing and selling so, you know, just because something is historical, you're going to give it a free pass. That, Not giving it a free pass. I, should, well, but I, I you, say we, but, should, de- but but we you, should critique it and deconstruct it. So the article the, the, seemed the gist of the, of the petition by these 300 uh, French intellectuals is, for example, to... Um, well, even if it's not, let's propose this, that publication of those parts of the Quran that call for violence against Jews be uh, illegal. It's futile. It's, it's it, like saying the Mein Kampf should yeah, be it was, illegal it was because futile it was written to, by a mass-murdering tyrant. You it, know? it was futile to sign a petition to ask ScoMo not to fund school chaplains, but we, <laughs> but we, but we did it anyway yeah, because well, it was a matter of principle. Is, are there no matters of principle anymore? There are, of course. Well, this surely is a matter of. I just principle. think it's a waste of exercise. Well, I tend to agree with I, both of you. I think Paul's right in that you know if you if you have in France the the French version of the Quran ignoring those lines, you would have the Saudis would produce the original version and send it over there anyway. Yeah, but but what you'd say is bookshops you're not allowed to sell that. No, oh, they'd just deliver them and distribute them freely. I would have thought. You're not allowed to give them away. Okay, that's fine. So yeah. do we then it, ban the Bible because it's got some pretty nasty stuff well, in if it the, as if, well? If, well, if there Absolutely, are... I think if, there should. I if think if there are direct calls for violence yeah. against other groups, I think, uh, you know, yeah. th- perhaps nobody identifies as a Canaanite anymore or something like that. So, you know, it's uh, the Old Testament maybe doesn't apply, but there's certainly parts of the Quran that call for violence against Jews and Christians. They certainly are, but I just think it's futile to try and ban books. I think you should just educate people as to why they're they're not right and why they're not um, documents on which to base base your life and your actions. Right. So when we, I'm, I was sure I was sure you were on the same page when we were talking about freedom of speech, and we agreed we should be able to insult and offend Absolutely. other groups. But we drew the line at inciting violence. Yes, and you're saying that's okay if it's a historical document. No, I'm not saying it's okay to incite violence. But but I mean the, do- or, or the it's- document itself is incapable of inciting violence. It's a dead thing. It's it's an object. You know what I mean? I'm talking it's- about people going on the radio or on TV or on the internet live and saying. My my group, my gang, my tribe go out and murder people of X ethnicity or whatever. Yeah, but an imam would say to his tribe, "Go and uh, commit this violence because it says so in the Quran at this section." Then I would say the act of the imam or whoever is issuing that that directive is the person who should be prosecuted, not not the historical document. Right. It doesn't help his case, though, that he can point to the Quran and say, No, it, it doesn't help his case. It's the holy book. It's all perfect. No, it doesn't help his case because he is the person who is inciting the violence, not the document. The document is just a document. It's like saying... But it helps him persuade people that it's there. Well, if it's, it's there, it helps We may as well them. ban Treasure Island because in Treasure Island some people, you know, some pirates got shot, you know. It's got violence in it. No, 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 but that didn't call for violence on people today. Treasure Island didn't well, say... Well, some people might interpret it that way, that anyone well, with an eye patch 
you know, should be treated as... In, oh, you know, well, I think well, Treasure well, Island is well known as a, is it, uh, as a, is a, is a work of fiction. Yes. And therefore, you and know... so is the Quran. Well, the Quran, but, but, is, but, the Quran is believed by the three of us to be a work of fiction. It's not perceived by a billion Muslims to be a work of fiction. You, you couldn't equate the Quran with Treasure Island. In that, like, I just did. I, I know. Well, and you've got but, it wrong, but, Paul. But in all seriousness... <laughs> You couldn't. But, so, you take my point. I mean, you know, the, no. the at the, currently the, with this Me Too movement and and, and the whole sort of um, should I say hysteria about sexual violence. And I'm not saying sexual violence is okay by any means, but there's now I I I've seen people on TV reviewing movies talking about should we now go back and censor old. Are movies, you know, who, uh, which which show scenes in which men behave in in a in a manner that is now considered inappropriate. Yeah, well, I wouldn't, I would disagree with that because it's not inciting violence. So, well, some people would argue it's inciting violence against women. Right. It's inciting misogyny or whatever. But you know, my my point is, mm. we can't go back and change old documents, whether they're films, books, or whatever. What we have to do is educate people to think more critically about those old documents and to put them in some sort of historical perspective. It's the old education argument. We just educate people; they'll absolutely they'll, they'll come round. What else do we have? What other what other effective tool do we have? But to brute force educate people. <laughs> I don't think brute force is the answer. Re-education either. camps. Yeah. All right. So. Seems to me that because it's historical, you're giving, you're saying, if I was to write, if somebody was to come up with a new religion today, and as part of that religion they said, you know, we should be killing Polynesians just because they're bad people. Careful, right? Uh, because they all play you, football. You, you would, you would be quite, and, and you know, the religion says, well, this is our holy text. And uh, this is what we believe, um, you know, charge them usury, uh, and if they don't pay that, then kill them and you know, give them a whack over the head for good measure. Now, if a new religion cropped up today and that was part of their holy text and they started selling it in bookshops, you would say, no problem, go ahead. I would say publish whatever you like so long as you're, you're not directly inciting people to be violent against each other. Yes, but on the other hand, I mean, as a, as a countermeasure, the authorities might publicise the fact that there is this pernicious text being published and distributed and that people should be aware that it's, it's a work that is highly suspect and people need to look at it you know, with a very um, critical so, so, eye. So no text should be banned because it's up to the, pro- the vocal proponent who should be stopped. So the Absolutely. text itself. Absolutely. So if there's a text that's, that's a, uh, a manual of, of how to be a successful pedophile, here's how you go about it, here's how you find kids and you don't get caught and you can evade the police make sure you use a VPN and make sure you do this and that, should that document be banned? Well, obviously I would not be in favour of that document being disseminated. But, I mean, we do have laws, I mean, against disseminating bomb-making manuals for the same reason. It's a very similar thing, yeah. But historical documents like the Koran cannot be unwritten. But hang on a minute. They're already out there. I'm just trying to get the difference here. So the religious one, though, wasn't historical. It was a freshly made religion. Like the Book of Mormon was written in the 19th century. Let's imagine it had a violence inciting passage in it. If a religion is freshly born and has that passage in it, would you say it should be banned? I'm not in favour of of banning religious books per se. I'm in favour of educating people. But a pedophile manual and a bomb-making manual... A pedophile manual is not a religious book, Trevor. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but this is my point. You're, You're prepared to give a free pass to a document if it's got a religious basis yes. as opposed to one that doesn't 
Well, You're giving the, a special privilege to a religious document. Yeah, look, I think you're confusing the issue if you're trying to say a, a, a book that is written to to be used as a pedophile manual is the same as a religious document. They're I'm saying the they're different. Thing. I'm saying they're different. And I'm, I'm trying to ascertain why... They're different in one sense, but I say both should be banned. And you are saying only one should be, and I'm trying to work out why... Only one, because and we not have both. the principle of freedom of thought, and religious documents but, but are don't basically pedophiles about, have freedom of thought. They have freedom of thought, but freedom, so a limit freedom somewhere. to teach each other how to molest children is is quite another matter. But you know, religious documents are not generally around pedophilia, are they? No, no, no but that's an ex- example. You know, when you look closely at the Quran, it's pretty ugly what it it's very it, ugly it calls for. So killing the Old Testament. In, in, you know, killing of Jews. Yes. I can't convince you, can I? Not on that one, no. Right. I, I, you know, I, you know <laughs> well... I, I can see, you know what, we'll leave this one for the moment, Religion Paul. is just a bunch of bad ideas. And, yeah. and I think the more effective strategy is to combat the bad ideas, not by okay. banning the books. Because we all know banning books doesn't work. You know, yeah. it was like the, the English translation of the Bible. They tried yeah. to ban that and it didn't mm. work. Mm. Okay, I can see this is going to turn into um, the, the gay... Wedding cake. Uh, wedding, yeah. The wedding cake <laughs> scenario. We're going to come back to this one. What about the Velvet so, Club? What's your view on this? So, I tend to agree with both he, he of you. He agrees with both of us. I agree with both of you. I think Paul's right in that you, you can't unring a bell that's already been rung. But I do agree with the sentiment that's been expressed there that they're saying that you should you should out you should do away with those those bits of the Quran. I agree with them wholeheartedly, because those bits of the Quran do incite violence, as does the Old Testament. Absolutely, yeah. it does. Yeah, and that's why those, I would be more than happy well. to see. I would be more than happy to see someone take a red Nico pen to the Old Testament Look, too. See, when out, you out. start banning books, where do you stop? When they stop, only where they talk about inciting violence. No, if you give the government, it's like it's not the whole book. Just chop out the bits that are nasty. It won't work, Trevor. It's like free speech. If you give give the legal authorities the power to ban certain speech, then you give them the. You know, where does it stop? You asked me where it would stop, and I said the the passage where it's written signs violence. That's where it stops. It's really too subjective because. As we know, there are, there are, there are feminists now who, who are telling us that something like 50% of Australian high school, uh, university students have been sexually uh, molested in some way. And, and in some case, it was just a young woman sitting on a public bus and some guy on the street as the bus went past... Wolf whistled up. Now, that's sexual Hang assault but, but, but to some people. Said, where will it stop? We can't go banning books. But you've agreed we can when it relates to pedophiles and bomb making. Look, pedophilia is an extremely serious issue. It's a, it's so a you can bit make like, a judgment of well, it. Well, at some point, yes, so, you do make so a judgment. Are, we, because you don't want your local high school students having access to bomb making methods. So it's not a question of never um, banning a book or a passage of a book, but... There are circumstances where it's appropriate. There are circumstances where it's appropriate in in national security interests to restrict access to uh, government uh, documents as well, you know. Right, we'll come back to that one. Dear listener, at this point, I'm going to uh, edit this podcast and we're going to finish off with episode 146 the boys, we're going to stay and we're going to keep talking for another hour and that's going to appear as episode 147. So if you, maybe it'll work out that in order to fully appreciate 147, you will need to have listened to 146. I don't know. Who knows where we'll end up. But for the moment, we're going to say goodbye on episode 146 and talk to you again next week. Cheers. Bye now. See you, listeners. Well, dear listener, Did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and 
search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.